0: Good evening, abortion Afghanistan, city workers getting the shots and a documentary about 9-11 workers on tap for the news tonight. And you're listening to the news on WBAI Thursday, September 9th, 2021. In national in, – pardon me, in international news, dozens of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank have been wounded in confrontations with Israeli soldiers. They're protesting in solidarity with six Palestinian men who escaped a high-security Israeli prison earlier this week. Hundreds demonstrated in Ramallah, Nablus, Bethlehem, and Hebron, as well as surrounding towns and villages. Activists burned tires, bins, and threw stones at Israeli forces, which were met with flash grenades and tear gas canisters. On Monday, six Palestinian men escaped the maximum security Gilboa Jail through a hole in the floor of a cell. The prisoners have all either been accused or convicted of planning attacks on Israel. Meanwhile, Palestinian activist Ahmed Oda says if the Israeli occupation continues to attack the the detainees, there may be a case of revolution, a big one that will invade the prisons, adding no one can know what will happen after that. Israel forces have also deployed drones, road checkpoints and an army mission to Jenin, the flashpoint West Bank hometown of many of the men who were imprisoned for their roles in the Second Palestinian Intifada in the early 2000s. And here in the United States, the Justice Department today sued Texas over a new state law that bans most abortions, arguing that it was enacted in open defiance of the Constitution. The announcement was made today by Attorney General Merrick Garland. He says the Texas law is clearly unconstitutional. Today, after a careful assessment of the facts and the law, the Justice Department has filed a lawsuit against the state of Texas. SB-8 bans nearly all abortions in the state after six weeks of pregnancy, before many women even know they are pregnant, and months before a pregnancy is viable. It does so even in cases of rape, sexual abuse, or incest. The act is clearly unconstitutional under longstanding Supreme Court precedent. A state may not prohibit any woman from making the ultimate decision to terminate her pregnancy before viability. And as Attorney General Merrick Garland, the Texas law known as SB 8 prohibits abortions once medical professionals can detect cardiac activity, usually around six weeks before before some women know they're pregnant. The attorney general also argued the Texas law could expose some federal employees at different agencies across the government to civil liability for doing their jobs. Meanwhile, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is again under fire for his state's new bounty hunter abortion law after falsely claiming it doesn't force victims of rape or incest to give birth, even though it prohibits abortions after about six weeks. At a news conference on Tuesday, Abbott was asked about forcing a rape or incest victim to carry their pregnancy to term. He responded, the state would eliminate rapists.
1: It doesn't require that at all because, obviously, it provides at least six weeks Uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. So, for one, it doesn't provide that. That said, however, let's make something very clear. Rape is a crime, and Texas will work tirelessly to make sure that we eliminate all rapists from the streets of Texas by aggressively going out and uh, arresting them and prosecuting them and getting them off the streets. So, goal number one in the state of Texas is to eliminate rape so that no woman, no person will be a victim of rape. Exactly. But, in it, but in addition to that, we do want to make sure that we provide support for those who are victims of rape. And we have organizations that we as a state support that others support uh, to make sure that anybody who's victimized that uh, will get the support they need. Are you playing-
0: and that's Governor Greg Abbott of Texas. In California, speaking at a campaign event for California Governor Gavin Newsom ahead of uh, Tuesday's recall election, Vice President Kamala Harris called out Abbott as arrogant.
2: So when I was leaving this morning, I was watching the morning news. as early. I left D.C. And they had this clip of the governor of Texas. And the words that he spoke were the... Words that were to arrogantly dismiss concerns about rape survivors and to speak those words that were empty words, that were false words, that were fueled with not only arrogance but bravado. That is not who we want in our leaders.
0: And that was uh, Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States. And we don't have this clip, but it's widely available on the Internet. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez slammed Abbott in an interview with CNN's Anderson Cooper on Tuesday, saying he lacks basic knowledge of biology. Meanwhile, deputy director of the National Organization for Women New York City is Jean Bucaria. She doubled down on the assertion the Texas governor is ignorant of the issues he's legislating.
3: This is the most uninformed, nonsensical type of statement that just demonstrates a lack of understanding about the reality of women's lives and the people's lives in his own state. I mean, it's actually offensive to rape victims. Rape is one of the most under-prosecuted and under-reported crimes. And most sexual assaults and rapes happen by someone you know, not a random stranger on the street. The idea that we can actually end rape by locking them up is ridiculous. But if you really want to reduce or eliminate rape, we need to change our culture. We need to change our society to one that respects consent and promotes the autonomy of women and women having freedom over their bodies. Governor Abbott has done with this Texas ban the polar opposite of that.
0: And isn't there an issue in conservative states uh, as to what, especially within a married relationship, what really even constitutes rape?
3: It's something that feminists and activist survivors have worked on for years. It's making sure that we change the laws so that the way that rape and sexual assault is defined, it's defined in a way that means that there's a lack of consent. And a person doesn't have to necessarily fight back. We know the way that trauma impacts people. Someone might freeze in that moment. People respond different ways. Often it could be there are lots of cases of incest where it's a family member. And so to account for the reality of sexual assault and rape in this country and the way that that happens, Governor Abbott really has no understanding of that.
0: No understanding or is it just flipping the middle finger at America for political reasons?
3: I don't think it's any coincidence that some of the strongest restrictions against voting rights just went into law and were signed into law. Uh, two days ago by Governor Abbott in Texas. You see this real locking up of this conservative agenda where we're trying to prevent people from voting out the people who have impact over our lives. And at the same time, we see this draconian and unprecedented laws banning abortion access for women and any person that can become pregnant. It's really dystopian the way that this law is playing out. The state has passed a law that it doesn't want to take its own responsibility for enforcing, instead, the law is, in a very strange way, trying to evade getting held up in the federal courts by giving power to individuals. Any person can sue anyone else if they feel that that person helped someone obtain an abortion. That is really dangerous, and it's creating a culture of fear and intimidation for the women of that state.
0: Mexico, just a couple of days ago, decriminalized abortion, and already the states, the Mexican states along the border with Texas are getting ready to open abortion clinics.
3: What else can speak to the sad state of affairs of the United States of America that we are not providing the health care that women need right here in our country and that people are going to have to leave the U.S. to get the care they need? That speaks to the moment that we're at. It's why women, trans people, people across this country, we are a pro-choice majority. We know this is healthcare that almost a quarter of women before the age of 45 need access to get. We're not going to stop. That's why we're here out here today in New York City. We're supporting our activists on the ground in Texas and our advocates and our health care providers in Texas. And we need to support them. And we need to stop these bans from taking hold across the country.
0: Kathy Hochul is speaking. Obviously, New York is one of the first states ever to legalize abortion in the United States. But at the same time, you can't help but fear that we're heading towards a situation where the entire right to abortion in Roe versus Wade is being challenged.
3: Absolutely. That's exactly where we're headed. The Supreme Court, for the first time, failed to act to actually put an injunction against this law that is clearly unconstitutional. They're claiming that there's confusion around whether or not the courts can take a look at this. But really, if they wanted to stop direct harm to women in the state of Texas, they should have taken immediate action, and they didn't. We see sort of this building and packing of the courts with a conservative anti-choice agenda getting a foothold right now. We all should be worried. People do not have the ability to travel. They don't have the ability to afford abortion as it is. The more clinics that become inaccessible, the more dangerous this environment really is for women's health and lives. This is The Handmaid in Sale Comes to Life.
0: Jean Bukaria is a Deputy Director of the National Organization for Women in New York City. Bukaria was at Brooklyn Borough Hall as a rally in support of abortion rights was being held, attended by top state and city elected officials. Among the speakers, Mayor Bill de Blasio, Public Advocate Jumani Williams, and Governor Kathy Hochul.
3: Keep your damn hands off our bodies. Keep your damn hands off our bodies. We are sick and tired. We're going to take this battle anywhere it occurs, and I want
1: to thank all of you.
2: You inspire me. And we have to be ready to use every tool to make clear we will not allow this. Not in our nation. Every tool we have politically, economically, whatever we have to do to protect the rights of women, we will do it and New York City will lead the way. We are here, hundreds of us to stand up to it. But that's gonna have to turn into thousands and then millions who will not accept what's happening in Texas. will not accept a United States Supreme Court that is openly defying the will of the people. But you know what? In a fight, bet on New Yorkers to win. We will be there and we will win. God bless you all.
3: Jamani Williams, another fighter from Brooklyn.
1: Peace and blessings, love and light to all of y'all. I really wish we didn't have to be here, but we do. And we knew at some point that we might be here. We said years ago that elections have consequences. And we knew that they came for some rights in the morning and the rest of them at night. I'm here the public advocate because I need to advocate for everyone. But I also must be here for my mother, my sister, my 13-year-old daughter who's just figuring life out, and my wife that has always fought as hard as we had to, to make sure that we get those rights back and keep them. And that's what we're here for today.
0: Public advocate Jumani Williams. Meanwhile, Texas Right to Life, the state's largest anti-abortion group and a driver of the new law, said today in anticipation of the lawsuit that it was already working with other states to pass similar measures. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. An estimated 200 people including Americans, left Afghanistan on a commercial flight out of Kabul today with the cooperation of the Taliban, the first such large-scale departure since United States forces completed their frantic withdrawal over a week ago. Department of State Press Secretary Ned Price made the announcement.
4: Today
5: we can confirm that a Qatar Airways charter flight with U.S. citizens, lawful permanent residents uh, on board, departed the Hamid Qazai International Airport, this morning uh, and recently landed in Doha, Qatar. We've been working around the clock and in close coordination with our Qatari partners, including the Secretary's in-depth discussions this week with his counterpart, Foreign Minister Alfani, to facilitate the safe departure of US citizens, LPRs, and at-risk Afghans. We thank Qatar for their partnership and continued efforts to facilitate operations uh, and ensure the safety of today's flights.
0: And that's Department of State Press Secretary Ned Price. The Taliban's foreign minister and deputy prime minister reportedly helped facilitate the flight. Aboard the flight were Americans, U.S. green card holders, and other nationalities, including Germans, Hungarians, and Canadians. Meanwhile, closer to home, despite the cheery assessment by the administration, some advocates involved in helping Americans, translators, and others escape Afghanistan say the situation is growing desperate for many still left behind. A former United States infantry officer, Eric Edstrom, did two combat tours of duty in Afghanistan. He's been trying to get people out of the country for some time. He says President Biden made the right decision in pulling out. He just messed up in the process.
5: No one, it seems, has ever done a mapping of how many evacuees needed to get out of the country, where in the country are they located by regional geography, and then plan and match supply and demand the demand of evacuees relative to the supply of transport that can evacuate them and do a controlled extraction using all of the regional bases that existed when we had control over them. But then we resorted to a single choke point, a single point of failure at Kabul. And for many people, it's A, very dangerous to traverse the entire country that's controlled by the Taliban to get to Kabul, and B, it provides a terrible situation where, as you saw with the suicide bomber, that you can basically be sort of held hostage by groups and you're not actually able to get out the people that you want to.
0: Why did America
5: lose? Also depends how you define winning, which is one of the other issues. From my perspective and from having served in the country, the American military has never actually cared about what the people of Afghanistan want for themselves. I have never, ever been on a patrol or a briefing where you have colonels talking about the missions that were going on and asking, what do the Afghan people want? How are they going to see our involvement in their country? What is popular here? Does this align with their values culturally? We have imposed ourselves as an occupying force for 20 years, and so, of course, you're going to fail. The uncomfortable truth is that the reason that a coalition of the most powerful militaries on Earth supported by trillions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money and 20 years of time, haven't been able to defeat a few thousand ragtag Taliban fighters, is that they don't want what we want, and they will continue to resist, and they will continue to have a pipeline of support for as long as we are there. Right.
0: And that's uh, it. The work you've been doing on your website, getting people out, how did that begin, and how's that been developing, and how's it stand right now?
5: I... Um, have been in the process of trying to support one of my Afghan interpreters. Some have gotten out and been resettled here in the United States, two of which are blue passport carrying American citizens. And I'm really thankful that the process has worked for them. One of them, it has not worked out so well for. He has basically been in State Department visa purgatory for seven years. He has done every single check that he needs to do. And the State Department has not issued him a visa. They will not tell me why they will not issue him a visa. So I was brought into this group to try to get him out finally, once and for all. And so I was invited to a variety of messenger groups of concerned veterans and volunteers, which goes under the moniker of the coalition as hashtag Afghan evac. There's a big gap between geopolitics and the guy on the ground trying to make it to the airport. And no one in the U.S. government planned for that coordination. So we sort of stepped in to fill that gap. There's been some successes, but overall it's been a catastrophic failure. The U.S. government has left behind the overwhelming majority of our Afghan allies. The job is not done. We continue this work. A lot of folks are still trying to get people out through private jets, as you've probably seen on various news articles today also there's a whole second part which is resettlement there's no plan in the united states for how to get these people integrated into society and one of the most tragic aspects of state department bureaucracy is that it takes so long to get anyone over here to get a siv approved anyway people are resorting to basically adopting afghan families as if they are dependents and then they are financially liable for them so there are many veterans out there Who are adopting their former interpreters effectively and they can be sued by the state if ever they needed welfare retraining anything like that you're basically saying i will resolve and relieve the u.s government of any responsibility for this family and this person and they will be under my financial charge and that is a moral tragedy
0: a former united states infantry officer eric edstrom did two combat tours of duty in afghanistan The organization Wartime Allies estimates that as many as 20,000 special visa applicants remain in the country, not counting those eligible under a more liberal rule change made in July. Add their families to that and the total amounts to more than 80,000 people. And in local news, an internal memo circulating through the NYPD outlines how the department will enforce a new mandate requiring police department employees to either get vaccinated or be subject to weekly COVID-19 testing. Less than half of NYPD's 35,000 uniformed officers and 18,000 civilian employees are vaccinated. Anyone who refuses to get vaccinated or provide proof of COVID 19 tests will not be allowed to work and will not be paid. In response, the PBA sent out a memo to its members saying it plans to fight the mandate, but Mayor Bill de Blasio said today there will be consequences for failure to get the jab. We have not
2: yet applied a full requirement to all agencies. We have, as of the 13th coming up, a vaccinate or test requirement for a number of agencies. Now, if someone, again, uh, does not uh, follow that mandate, it's true. Eventually, they're not going to be paid, obviously. That's been clear for quite a while. But we feel confident that we're going to have adherence, and that we can make adjustments if there's any issues. Mayor Bill de
0: Blasio, the vaccine or test plan falls in line with de Blasio's executive order that is requiring all city workers, more than 300,000, to get the vaccine or get tested weekly. There's no testing option for some city workers, including Department of Education teachers, who are mandated to get vaccinated. The timeline for all of this is Monday, which coincides with the first day of reopening for city public schools. And tomorrow night, WNET, Channel 13, the PBS station in the greater New York area is premiering a film called New York City, DDC, 9-11. It's about the workers with the New York City Department of Design and Construction, the DDC, tasked with clearing 1.8 million tons of debris from ground zero in lower Manhattan.
4: On 9-11, when the city needed help, they called us.
2: Everybody knows from this point on, nobody stops
5: the job ddc is the navy seals of city agency we do
4: amazing high-profile things in visible ways when the city needs us we show up
0: the producer and director of the film is seth kramer he says he was moved to make the film when he discovered that the ddc employees had been often ignored for their courageous role in the recovery after 9-11
4: the film takes a look at the cleanup and recovery operation uh, at the Trade Center disaster site after 9-11. Uh, this, this was one of the most technically complicated and dangerous construction efforts in, in the nation's history. And so the film introduces you to some of the people who managed the project. This little-known New York City agency called the Department of Design and Construction. They Build things typically like libraries and senior centers, police stations, city-owned properties. You'll also see them doing street repair, but they're not emergency responders. It was a surprise to everyone, including them. They ended up managing this recovery effort at Ground Zero. To go in there and to do these kind of things in a giant
0: graveyard, which people don't realize what it was like, is terrible. How did it begin? How did they get into that?
4: Amazingly, members of the Department of Design Construction showed up much like you did and many other New Yorkers. They simply arrived at the site unofficially and started to help in any way that they could. Turns out these are the city's construction and engineering experts. They could help quite a bit. By the time FEMA arrived, because usually it's the federal government that would take charge in a crisis on this scale, the Department of Design and Construction had things more or less under control and saw the operation through to the end.
0: Right. What was the operation? What did they do?
4: On the face of it, the Department of Design and Construction was tasked with removing about 2 million tons of debris from ground zero after the towers collapsed. A big part of the effort was to help the recovery workers, mainly with with the fire department, to Mm -hmm. find the remains of the missing and then to bring the city back to life. Initial estimates thought that the work would take years, some said as many as five years, to remove all that debris. It was assumed that workers would die because construction sites are dangerous to begin with, and this one was on fire and collapsing. And in the end, they did the work in less than a year, and there was no additional loss of life. It's really one of the great American achievements it's tinged by sadness and horror but it was an extraordinary effort besides your film about them have they ever been recognized for that there was reporting at the time that explained that who the who the department of design and construction were and what they were doing and there have been some accounts over the years but not much and this is a city agency that doesn't really do a lot of self-promoting they kind of just wake up and do their jobs Not really. I think the people that we interviewed, we interviewed about 38 people for the film that are still working with the agency. They're proud to be in the movie, but I was a little angry (laughs) that they haven't received more recognition. I was motivated to make the film from that perspective. How about the illnesses, the poisonings? Everyone is in the World Trade Center health screening program, which is great. I know a number of the people who I filmed at the time are no longer alive, but it's hard to attribute anything site related to why they're no longer with us. The footage you see in this film, which is mainly from ground zero over this eight month period, was filmed by me and two other cameramen. There was a media ban on the site, but we made an appeal to Mayor Giuliani to make an exception for us. He ended up granting us exclusive access That's one sort of unusual thing about the film. You're seeing the people, you're seeing the members of the Department of Design and Construction then doing this work, and you're hearing from them today as they look back on it. What
0: should people take away from your film as far as the response of the people of New York to this disaster that happened so unexpectedly in the midst of our city?
4: It feels like the nation is ready to do a little soul-searching over how we reacted to 9-11 over the past two decades, and maybe a some degree of beating ourselves up for this or that. But the work that was done at Ground Zero, that response by these city workers, these are government employees managing that crisis, is really something to be proud of.
0: Seth Kramer is producer and director of New York City DDC 9-11. New York City DDC 9-11 is premiering tomorrow night, September 10th, on WNET Channel 13, the PBS station in the greater New York area. It's also going to be available on the WNET website. And that's some of the news for Thursday, September 9th, 2021. The news is producer Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.